You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 111. In this episode of the podcast, you'll be meeting Brad Parks. He's an international best-selling author and the only writer to have won the Seamus, Nero, and Lefty Awards, three of American crime fiction's most prestigious prizes. His novels have been translated into 15 languages and have won critical acclaim across the globe, including stars from every major pre-publication review outlet. He's a graduate of Dartmouth College, and Parks is a former journalist with the Washington Post and the Newark Star-Ledger. He is now a full-time novelist, living in Virginia with his wife and children. His latest book, Interference, will be published today on September 1st, where it's already a bestseller on Amazon. I'll talk with Brad about his books, his writing process, and a lot more, so stay tuned for that interview coming up here in a sec. A quick reminder, though, uh, please rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. And if you haven't already, please uh, subscribe. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms out there. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn. Pick your poison and you'll find this podcast there. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast, you'll help me uh, with the visibility uh, on those directories, uh, so I would appreciate it. Uh, make sure to also visit thrillerauthors.com for show notes, resources, and to access over 100 other interviews. All right, here's my interview with Brad Parks coming up right now. In this uh, episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking with uh, Brad Parks here on Zoom, the best-selling author of 10 Thrillers. His latest book, Interference, will be published on September 1st, and it's already an Amazon bestseller and pre-order here in late August. Uh, Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being on. Yeah, Alan, great to be here. Thank you. So can you uh, tell the, the uh, listeners about your background and your journey to becoming a bestselling author? Oh, gosh. That, that, that's a lot. Boy, do you have four hours? Um, so, you know, I'm I'm that kid who was always writing. You know, I, I always say I wrote my first novel when I was seven. Uh, it was a, a book about a bear wandering through the wilderness with his friends, except I spelled bear B-E-E-R. Um, dad loved that book. Anyhow, um, and then, you know, from there, I started uh, writing for my hometown paper when I was 14 years old, uh, getting paid 50 cents a column inch. Uh, you know, from there, I, I wrote all through high school. I wrote all through college. I was a journalist for many years. And then, you know, long about my mid-30s, which was about 10 years ago, uh, I suddenly realized that this journalism thing that I that I loved wasn't going to be there for me forever, that, that newspapers were dying. And so my wife and I made this kind of critical, crazy jump where we said I would quit my job and we would move to wherever she got a job and I would bang out novels until one sold. And we were actually in the middle of working that plan when a novel I had already written uh, that was being shopped that I thought nothing was going to happen with. I, I got the, the fabled famous call from my agent saying, hey, remember that novel? Oh, yeah, yeah. She said, I just sold it to St. Martin's Press for a two book contract. Uh, and that's kind of what launched my career as a thriller author. So there's the, uh, the you know, the, the minute and 30 second version of uh, how I get to be where I am today. And 10 books later, still going strong. And so that, fir that first book that, you, that your agent sold, did you write that while you were working full time as a journalist? And right. So yeah, see if you can figure this out, Alan. I was working as a, an investigative journalist in Newark, New Jersey. And the book is about an investigative journalist from Newark, New Jersey. I, where did I get this stuff? I don't know. Um, but, you know, I always joke. It's like I, 
I was writing the book basically at, at six o'clock in the morning before I went into work. You know, I was a, a typical journalist, so th th there's nothing happening early in the day. So I could get away with, you know, not coming into work until 10 o'clock. Um, and I would write every morning. And the thing is, that writing at six o'clock in the morning, you can't call experts to help you with the research for your book you kind of have to write the stuff that's already off the top of your head that you already know. And so that's why I ended up writing this character who was me because I had sort of already done the research. And so how would you describe your books for the listeners who now might, be not, might not be familiar with your work? Right. So uh, yeah, 10 books in, it's, so, it's sort of hard to sweepingly describe them uh, handily, right? But I, I think they are, they are thrillers that involve people that you might meet in the grocery store. Uh, so these are not characters who have any amazing special skills. They are not ex special forces. They are not. They can't break your jaw by looking at it. They, 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 there's nothing particularly black ops special about them. But they are put into some extraordinary circumstances, right? And then they have to work their way out. So hopefully they are relatable characters. They, they, they certainly are real to me, and uh, real to the readers is certainly my aim and goal and hope. Yeah, your latest book, uh, Interference, uh, that actually kind of goes a little beyond the uh, traditional thriller model because you're dealing with some uh, heavy subjects like uh, quantum physics and the study of matter and energy and how they interact with each other. So now, is that something that you've always been interested in? And, and when, did, when did you get the idea that, oh, I can write a thriller about that stuff? Right. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I have always been a nerd. Let's be clear about that. Although a specific type of nerd, like I was never very good at science in school. But I always loved the ideas of science and the stories of science. And so I always thought to myself, I would love to write a physics book someday. And I probably made at least two or three or four other attempts at writing a, quote, physics book that all just fell apart spectacularly, you know, sagged under the weight of their own horrificness. Because I think I was trying to fit my book to the science. And then one day I got this brainstorm of like, no, 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 no. I need to fit the science to my book, right? So I need to have a, a, a typical thriller plot, if you will. And there's, there's only, let's be realistic, there's only about 10 thriller plots out there. You know, so someone's being kidnapped, someone's missing, something's about to blow up, someone's about to die. I mean, these are, you know, the, we know what they are, but they're always exciting. Um, so can I, can I work with one of those and have the science in it? And when I kind of had that brainstorm within about 15 minutes, I thought, Okay, so what if I used quantum physics to help find a missing person? And that was the inspiration behind Interference. They're heavy subjects, but, but the book, it's uh, suspense, it's a heart-pounding thriller. Was it a challenge to put all that, all that science and, and, and all that information and put it in, into a, a, a page-turning thriller like you did? Yes, it was a challenge, Alan. I worked very hard at this. And, and please, listeners, go buy it because I worked hard and, and uh, I, I need everybody to buy it now. No, I mean, it, yes, obviously it, it is a challenge. But I, I think that the important thing with the science is can you keep it relatable and can you make it work within the story and where you, you sort of need to know the science to understand the story, but then you don't get any science that doesn't help you understand the story. So there's nothing extraneous. In terms of keeping it relatable, it, it helps that, you know, when, I, when I'm writing for the layperson, 
I'm a layperson too. I, I'm not any kind of world soaring genius. I have not done any of this physics myself. So it's easy for me to kind of keep in touch with that person who knows nothing about this subject because I basically am that person. <laughs> uh, and maybe, yeah, I've done some research and I've read some books and I know a little more, but, but I still kind of keep it on that level of even if you know nothing about quantum physics before you start this book, I promise you, you will not be lost as you dive into it. Yes, I, I can vouch for that because I don't didn't know anything about that stuff. <laughs> I, was, right. I was more of a humanities guy, like uh, as was I. says. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but but yeah, but it's it was it was a great read. Um, and so, can you for the listeners? Can you tell us about the uh, about the plot for interference? Uh, not get, get sure. Away so the uh, the protagonist, uh, her name is Bridget Bronick, and she's a librarian because hey, we love librarians, right? Mm-hmm. Her husband is a physicist who has been kind of poking and prodding at these these mysteries of the quantum universe. Because for as much as we understand about quantum physics, there's a whole lot we don't understand. Oftentimes we understand the what, but not the why. And in the, the process of prodding these mysteries of quantum physics, he keeps making himself sick. And we don't quite understand why. And then one day while he is sick, he is kidnapped. And of course, we don't know by whom. And then it becomes up to Bridget Bronick to figure out who has kidnapped her husband and why and where is he and whatnot. Now, the heavy science that gets involved in this is it's a concept called quantum entanglement, uh, which, although it sounds science fiction-y, is a real thing. Uh, Quantum entanglement basically says that sometimes two particles can be born entangled with each other. And when that happens, you can separate them by any distance and they retain this kind of cosmic connection to each other. You can tickle one and the other immediately feels it, no matter how far apart they have been separated. Now, Einstein thought this was impossible, just ludicrous. He called it spooky action at a distance and insisted it was a sign that all of quantum physics as we understood it was fundamentally broken. Except it turns out in the 85 or so years since Einstein posited that belief, we have proven that quantum entanglement actually exists. We can demonstrate it in laboratories in ways that that basically close out any possibility that anything other than what I have described is just happening, that these two particles really can be entangled with each other. And the moment you figure out that particle A is, say, upspin, particle B immediately becomes downspin. And this interaction that happens, or this coordination can be separated by galaxies, right? And this is what Einstein thought was impossible because you're seeing this this kind of coordination happen faster than the speed of light. And how is that possible? Because nothing is faster than the speed of light. Well, but apparently something is, and we still don't understand what that is. But from the uh, from the thriller standpoint, the, the great what if is, okay, so if we can have particles get entangled with each other, we can have molecules get entangled with each other. We can have systems of molecules get entangled with each other. What about human beings, right? And so could we have someone who has been kidnapped and now somebody else is going to find them because their brains are entangled with one another? And that's the premise of interference. Wow. And then when you start coming up with these ideas, uh, do you like, um, what's your writing process like? Do you like outline everything or do you like get the idea and then you start, just go off and start writing it? Yeah. So yes, in the in the great divide of plotters versus pantsers, <laughs> where you know, as we all know, that the plotters plot out everything, and the pantsers go by the seat of their pants. I am definitely a pantser. 
Um, I have I have tried Alan being a plotter. I had this one thriller that it was three different storylines and they kind of had to all arrive in the same place at the same time. And I thought, okay, there's no way I can keep all of this in my puny brain. And so I outlined everything. And what that did for me was while it made for a very neat thriller where all the parts fit together, there was no joy in the writing. There was no, you know, kind of energy in it because I would get up every day and I would know, okay, this is a scene where character A has to do B, C, and D. And there wasn't that kind of, I don't know, um, maybe sheer terror is the right phrase that happens when you are pantsing it, when you don't know quite what happens next. And I, I think it, it allows me, that the, the pantsing it, it allows me to stay in touch with what the reader is experiencing as they're reading something. So if I'm you know, kind of fascinated by a twist that I've just made happen, I know the reader is going to feel the same way. Conversely, if I'm bored, I know the reader is going to be bored. And so I better make something really interesting happen because we don't read these books to be bored, Alan, do we? Um, so yeah, I, I, my process is I start with a kind of a vague idea. Uh, you know, really you start with a problem, right? Characters facing a problem. In this case, Bridget Bronick's husband has been kidnapped. And by whom and why did they do it? Well, I don't quite know that as I start writing the book. But I always figure if I don't know, then the reader won't know either. And uh, so we kind of then find it out together uh, over the course of 350 or 400 pages or so. But then, of course, I get the advantage of doing what the reader can't do, which is I then go back and make it look like I knew where I was going all along. <laughs> um, but my first time through, it's, it's very much a high wire act. Uh, and, and there's no net. And I don't know what's going to happen. And that can be both exhilarating and terrifying. Uh, because it's, you know, the old thing about falling, it's, it's not the fall, it's the shortstop at the end. Um, but, uh, but that is, that is what's worked for me through 10 published novels. I, I just sort of never know where it's going. And the old E.L. Doctorow quote, uh, writing a novel is like driving across country at night. You only need to be able to see as far as the headlights. I was reading, doing a little research for the interview. Now you consulted with an MIT professor right. to get the, some of the science details right. So I was kind of curious how that call went. Like uh, this uh, professor of quantum physics and, and a writer wants to pick his brain or her brain. How did that <laughs> play out? Well, okay. So this is where I have to admit that I, I kind of cheat a little bit, Alan, because I already knew what quantum entanglement was, right? Uh, because mm. I'm a nerd and because I sort of followed the stuff. And one of the reasons I followed it so closely is because a college buddy of mine turns out to be one of the leading researchers in the quantum physics. He is a guy who, you know, while he was just kind of a, a dumb guy, he was actually in my singing group in college and we sang together and he was a lovely guy and whatever. He went off to Harvard and got a double PhD in physics and the history of physics oh. and then became a professor at MIT. Uh, so he is a, a super, super smart guy who is also really down to earth and really good at explaining these heady concepts to people like me who did not get a double PhD from Harvard. Uh, so basically, Dave Kaiser is his name. I just called up Dave and I'm like, Dave, I got this idea. And we started spitballing things. Um, and God bless him. He uh, actually he, he also read. Uh, an early manuscript of the book and kind of was able to correct me in a few places where I'd gone wrong. So I, I cannot necessarily guarantee anything about this novel, but Alan, I guarantee I've gotten the science right because the guy who guaranteed it for me is way smarter than all of us. <laughs> and did, uh, did any of, his, of, uh, of your friend's char characteristics uh, end up uh, 
coming into a, a Matt, the Matt Bronick character or, or no? No, not really. Yeah, Matt, Matt Bronick was a character who, so, so this is the, uh, this is Bridget Bronick's husband, Matt. He was one of those characters that just sort of came to me fully formed. And I don't know what magic it is that makes this happen sometimes, but I, I always love the idea of genius coming from unexpected places. Because I think that's often the case with genius. Uh, you know, the classic example being Albert Einstein was a patent clerk in Switzerland, right? Well, so in the case of Matt Bronick, he grew up in a little town in North Carolina, Clinton, North Carolina. His parents and grandparents ran a little diner. Uh, real life Clinton, North Carolina is a hog town. Everybody there is either raising hogs or slaughtering hogs or processing hogs or whatever. And, um, and he kind of grew up and turned out to be a math prodigy who by the time he was in the fifth or sixth grade was winning these incredible math competitions and just had one of these extraordinary brains that comes along every once in a while. And I, I just, I was always kind of just tickled by the idea of that coming from uh, an unlikely place and what would happen to that guy and who would that guy become? And so there's this great mix with Matt Bronick of, uh, and, and this I perhaps did borrow from my friend Dave Kaiser of uh, an extraordinary brain and, and thinking about these the questions of the shape of the universe or what is the true nature of the cosmos and whatnot, but still a really down to earth guy that you could talk to. Uh, and because he's from North Carolina, of course I had to make him a huge college basketball fan mm -hmm. and, you know, and on and on. I, I don't know, like I said, like the character just kind of took on a life of his own. And I just, I really enjoyed writing him and I felt terrible for all the bad things I had to do to him in the book, Alan. <laughs> You've written a lot of, done a lot of your writing and your novels at the Hardy's fast food restaurant. How did, uh, how did all that start and how has that affected you now with the pandemic? I'm assuming they probably, sh you know, shut down for, for a while. How, yeah, you're going to, you're going to make me start to cry. Alan. Oh, sorry. Is, <laughs> yes, I have, I have been shut out of Hardy's for, you know, almost six months running now. And, you know, like, look, let, let's be clear in a pandemic where, you know, more than 160,000 people have lost their lives. I really can't gripe too much about not being able to go to my favorite fast food restaurant to write. So it's been a transition. Um, uh, I, you know, Hardee's has reopened. I have not gone back uh, just out of the fear of if God forbid I was, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a non-symptom having uh, carrier of this. I, you know, I, I don't want to be breathing in the corner of that dining room for four hours and potentially getting people sick, you know, even if I am wearing a mask. So I, I have been uh, yeah, keeping myself at home. And, and really, uh, authors are very, very lucky to do what we do at a time like this. Uh, our jobs are not in jeopardy. Our product is still in demand, if not more so. Uh, there was a great piece in the New York Times. It was actually a chart looking at the various professions, right? And how dangerous was your profession? Well, they, they put on one axis of the chart, the, the frequency of contact you need to have with other people. And on the other axis, the, the closeness that you have in, in your contact with other people. So as we would expect, doctors and nurses and first responders and, you know, the real heroes of this pandemic were way up in the upper right corner of this chart, the most dangerous jobs. Authors were all the way in the low left, the least dangerous job possible, right next to lumberjacks. So I'm, I'm always kind of cognizant of, of how good I have it, even though I've lost my hearties, uh, that I, I, I'm pretty lucky to have the job that I have during this difficult time. Yeah. So yeah, we, as writers, we've been uh, social distancing for a long time. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I always, you know, joke that uh, like, yeah, when you're a guy in the corner of a Hardy's restaurant <laughs> dreaming up ways to kill each other, like 
the social distancing happens pretty naturally. I got to be honest. Uh, but I still, I have not gone back to Hardy's since this all began. As I mentioned before, you were a journalist before you became a, a best-selling novelist. Uh, was that a difficult transition for you? And do you miss uh, being a journalist? I do miss being a journalist, although I probably more miss what journalism was and not what it is now. Uh, you know, I, I left journalism in 2008. Uh, Twitter was still in its infancy at that point and, and was barely ever part of the conversation. So we still had the the luxury. I, I always say that, you know, over the course of my career, even though I'm not that old, I'm 46 years old, I watched as how you measure a scoop went from, you used to measure it by the day, right? I got something in Wednesday's paper. You didn't get it until Thursday's paper. And then suddenly we were measuring it by the hour, you know, because I got it on the website at two o'clock and you didn't get it on the website until four o'clock. And then suddenly with Twitter, it's like, we're measuring it by the minute. Um, and I and I think of all the things that I might have tweeted out at say 2.25 in the afternoon, that by the time it comes to write the story at eight or nine o'clock at night, I would have no longer believed and I think to myself, my God, I thank goodness I was <laughs> never a journalist in the Twitter world. Uh, so I, you know, I do miss it. It was wonderful, wonderful training to be a novelist because really, and especially early in my career, I was a sports writer. And in sports writing, everybody already knows the final score, right? They, they want to know the story behind the score. So every day you go to the ballpark or the arena or the stadium or whatever, and you find a story and you tell a story and you find a story and you tell a story. And that becomes a, a really terrific muscle to develop that really actually does translate when you're writing novels because you understand what the elements of a story are and you understand how to develop them. And um, so for as much as I miss it, I'm still kind of really working that storytelling muscle I developed just in, in a very different way. I'm, I'm using my imagination now as opposed to using real life as the, as the grist for the mill. Yeah, I'd imagine too, especially as a, with your background as an investigative journalist too. Like that's part for me so hard and awkward to call people or try to look into things for you. You, know, you already had that. You, you, you did it in the, real, in the real world. Well, yeah, and you have to, you, you sort of get used to the idea of you don't care what people think about you when you do that job because the there is one definition of news that says news is something somebody doesn't want to see in the paper that's the point where it really becomes news right so if anything what one of the great transitions uh, of being an author versus being a journalist that took me a while to get used to is as a journalist when you show up at places oftentimes people really don't want to see you there, right? <laughs> and you are asking them things they don't want to talk about and they will slam the door in your face and they will kick you off of their porch and they will whatever it is, you know, versus I, I would show up for book signings or something and everybody was so delighted to see me <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they, they wanted to talk to me and they wanted to hear what I had to say. I, you know, I've yet to have a door slam in my face as a, as a novelist. Uh, so yes, this is a, a, a much more pleasant way of, of being in the world. So uh, were you a fan of th thrillers as a reader before you started uh, writing your own books? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and it's, it, it's been what I've read since, you know, whenever I graduated from the Hardy Boys to reading adult books, it, probably around the age of 12, you know, I, I was reading thrillers. Uh, you know, my dad was a huge John D. McDonald fan. And so I was reading those and, and Clive Cussler and James Patterson and, you know, and on and on. I mean, that's, that's what I love to read. And I actually, I always had this notion when I was a daily journalist. I, I knew that daily journalism was a, was a hard job and that it, it really had high burnout and it spit people up and chewed people out. And that 
when I became really old, right? Like in my fifties, right? Like, which was as far as I could ever even imagine being like, Oh my God, your fifties, you're, you're really, really old. Fifty is not looking as old as it used to Alan. That's another subject. Uh, <laughs> thought, you know, okay, I will have burned out by that point, And then I will just semi retire somewhere and I will like a little cottage on a, on like a little body of water or something like that. And I will bang out mystery novels. Um, so that was always my idea of what my semi-retirement was, was going to look like. And then when the newspaper industry started collapsing, I just sort of sped up the timeline, if you will, um, and, and, and moved up my dream. But I, yes, I, I've always been a thriller aficionado. And to this day, my idea of a great vacation is let me throw two books and I mean, sorry, two bathing suits and seven books in a bag. <laughs> And let me go on the beach and read for a week. Like that is just my idea of heaven. What do you hope readers take away from reading uh, Interference? You know, I think it's dangerous when an author even gets into answering that question, <laughs> to be honest. I, you know, because that's, that's really not for me to decide. And, and what people are going to take away is, is going to be radically different depending on who they are. I, I, as you mentioned, this book has already sort of been released a little bit uh, because it's now uh, on, it's an Amazon first read selection. Um, and so, uh, so there's a lot of people have already read it. And I actually, I'm the kind of writer, I read all my reviews. I think of it as market research. And I love seeing the very different reactions people have to this book. Uh, one that really touched me recently was a, a, a man who wrote, that he had recently lost his wife. And well, there's a character in this book, Emmett Webster, who's a, a detective for the New Hampshire State Police, who is also mourning the loss of his wife, which happens very early in the book. And, uh, and Emmett talks a lot about Wanda, his, his dead wife, and, and how it's affecting him and, and, and uh, you know, how difficult it is to go on. And uh, this, this gentleman who wrote this review talked about how Emmett was feeling all of the things that he was feeling and how it kind of made him feel a little less alone to know there was somebody else out there who was experiencing that. And was that ever something I intended for someone to take away from this novel? Well, no, but is that one of the most heartening things an author can read? Yeah, it sure is. And so uh, what's, uh, what's next for you? Is, uh, is Interference, is it a standalone? Is it part of a series? Yeah, Interference is, is a standalone. You know, I've been I've been writing standalones the last mm. couple of years. I, I started my career with a six book series about the investigative journalist uh, from Newark and then uh, kind of wanted to tell different stories. And somehow each new idea is, uh, has been a standalone. So my next one is actually in the end stages of editing right now. It is called Unthinkable. And it is a man, a, a, an ordinary stay at home dad. Like I said, all of my characters are kind of ordinary people who is asked to do the unthinkable. He is told, he either has to kill his wife or a billion people will die. Yeah, it's a good one, Alan. It's a good one. <laughs> That's heavy. <laughs> Is that also with, uh, with Thomas and Mercer? Yes, that'll, that'll be out next July. Oh, exciting. But in the meantime, interference will be a, a good warm-up for that because I, I promise there's also all sorts of dastardly things like that going on in interference. I just, I just can't tell you what it is. I don't want to spoil anything. Right, Alan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I was, 
Yeah, your publisher sent me an advanced copy. So yeah, it's uh, highly recommended uh, to everybody. And like I said, it's available now if you're on Amazon, uh, what is that, First Reads or our Prime member? <laughs> right. Although I think by the time this podcast runs, it will be widely available wherever books are sold. That is true. September like 1st. Uh, yep. So if you're, you're listening to this after September 1st, go get it. It's uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, so where, what's the best place for listeners to f- uh, find you? Is, uh, I would imagine it's uh, uh, bradparksbooks.com. Bradparksbooks.com is a great place. I'm on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash bradparksbooks. I'm on Twitter at brad underscore parks. I'm, I'm on Goodreads. I'm on BookBub. I, probably some other places too. But if you can't find me at any of those places I've just mentioned, you're not looking very hard. Uh, <laughs> but I, I always, I love to hear from readers. Uh, it's, it's a big part of the reason I do this, to make that connection with readers. You can always email me if you have something you want to say. I'm at brad at bradparksbooks.com. So I, I try to be as accessible as possible, Al. All right. Awesome. So, so that's great to hear. And uh, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. I really had a great time talking with you. Awesome. Alan, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review uh, to it, wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now, I would appreciate it. And uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.